Well, good morning, all souls. If you are watching from home, this message is different from the one at our outdoor service. And the reason for that is that I can't preach at my own installation service. Dr. Bill Dudley will be preaching there outdoors as I am after a delay brought on by COVID finally being installed as your pastor. Uh, installation is really kind of a strange word. I always feel like we are discussing large appliances. But the reason that we do this is to mark time in the life of the church. And we do this by acknowledging the call that was extended when you voted almost a year ago to lift up my responsibilities to you as pastor and yours to each other as a congregation. And also to kind of celebrate a new chapter in the life of all souls and God's faithfulness in the midst of all that. Uh, it's been a crazy start to this new chapter, but I can say with a pretty high degree of confidence that my time as your pastor is only going to get better when we are not in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, so that's what's going on uh, this afternoon. Uh, we'll catch some of the highlights and share those with you if you weren't able to be there with us today. And so this morning, I just want to offer a couple of brief reflections on the last few verses in the Sermon on the Mount. They are actually Matthew's narrative notes on the end of the sermon and how it was that the people responded to Jesus' words. And so, feel free to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Friends, listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished saying these things, i.e. the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, Father, we come before you, trusting that by your Spirit we may hear a word that can only come from you. And we ask that you would allow that word to reach into the deepest recesses of our hearts, so that hearing, we may obey joyfully. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Well, Jill and I recently have been watching The Right Stuff, the new National Geographic series based on Tom Wolfe's book about the Mercury 7 astronauts. And unlike the 80s movie of the same name, the series has this kind of gritty, anti-nostalgic take on the time period. It's got kind of this uh, uh, Mad Men type vibe that pulls back the curtain behind the Life magazine all-American veneer that presented these men as wholesome heroes. And it shines a spotlight, whether accurately or not, on the kind of uh, boozing and womanizing parts of the culture that went apparently hand-in-hand hand with the adrenaline junkie life of being a test pilot in the swinging 60s. But it's also a study in contrast between the embodiment of that hard-drinking playboy lifestyle that is personified by Alan Shepard and the morally upright, straight-laced values of John Glenn, who we are told several times throughout the series is a faithful Presbyterian, uh, you know, devout and devoted to his wife. He is a square known for not hanging out with the other astronauts during all of their extracurricular activities. 
And the clash of these two personalities comes to a head when Shepard has this moral lapse that gets caught by a reporter and puts the entire Mercury space program at risk. And he comes to Glenn in this crisis. And Glenn, who would go on to become a senator, flashes his political savviness by pulling the strings and getting a newspaper story spiked. But the whole thing starts to bother Glenn to the point that he calls this team meeting together and tells his fellow astronauts that they have got to straighten up, put away the bottles, zip up their pants, and put the mission first. Well, this meeting does not go as planned. And the, uh, the rest of the team basically turns on Glenn. They accuse him of thinking that he's better than they are and of judging them without even ever making a serious effort to be in relationship with him. He just kind of stares at them and judges them from the outside, so they say. It's this kind of moral authority without relationship that comes across as self-righteousness. Now, who knows if that really happened? I mean, it's a TV show. Nobody was there, you know, as far as we know. It's something that after all that Jesus teaches in the sermon, after all of the hard things that kind of cut to the quick of our pathologies, our hang-ups as humans, about the sins and the dysfunctions that we keep close to the vest, you know, anger, lust, greed, judgment, worry, and not just in what we say, but in the hidden places of our hearts and our minds, after all of these warnings that come for those who don't take his words to heart, still, somehow, the people who heard the sermon were absolutely amazed, not just because of the things that Jesus said, not just because it was brilliant, but because when Jesus spoke, he did so with this authority that was unlike anything that they had ever experienced. He didn't moralize or speak at them like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but instead he came to be with them. I love how Eugene Peterson imagines this in his uh, translation of this passage in the message. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard anything like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. Quite a contrast to their religion teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. The crowds heard Jesus because when he spoke, he wasn't hiding some dark intent in the cloak of piety. But instead, he spoke as one whose life was consistent with everything that he was teaching. And he didn't cast judgment on the crowds who heard his words, but instead, he invited them to enter into the kingdom that he was bringing. He invited them to participate. And surely, there were some on the mountainside who heard these words, uh, heard the warnings about building a, a, on a rock and building on a sand, and after a few days later said to themselves, no thanks, we're just going to wait for another. But those who did hear, they were struck. He had an authority 
that came from a perfectly integrated life. Possible, of course, because he is, in the words of the Nicene Creed, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence with the Father. Right, all of that is true. But you gotta know that that was not obvious to the people who were hearing him on the mountainside. What they saw and what they experienced was an authority that could only be discerned. Something that radiated out of a life that was in perfect harmony in action with everything that he taught. Now, the rabbinic style of the day was all about appeals to authority. Uh, that's the strength of tradition. You pass down to others what has been passed down to you. Authority does not come from you and from how smart or from how novel your interpretation is, but from the weight and the strength of all of the generations that have come before you. When asked to comment on uh, his contributions to the fields of mathematics and physics, Isaac Newton put it best when he said that he is only where he is because he stands on the shoulders of giants. Honoring those who came before, that is how wisdom gets passed down. Uh, this is captured really well in the south transept of the Cathedral of Chartres, France. The, the idea is literally painted in light with the gospel writers sitting on the shoulders of the Old Testament prophets. So a rabbi in Jesus' day, they would shore up their credentials by quoting the rabbi that they had learned from. It was a way of saying, I am you know, from the school of this teacher. Kind of like how somebody would say that they went to Harvard Law. It's meant to show that they had an authority that they knew that they were talking about. Your authority as a teacher was vested in those that came before you. You know, like you would say, well, rabbi so-and-so said this, that, or the other. But Jesus, on the other hand, he doesn't do any of that. He was interpreting Torah without referencing historical sources, without referencing other teachers. I mean, he was just going up without notes, telling the truth and dropping the mic, as the kids say these days. I, I don't know if they actually say that. In fact, Jesus, when he started out in all of those, you know, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, well, he was essentially calling out all of the other rabbis who had gotten it wrong. And then he would just name reality. He would put language to the way that life actually works, cast a vision for what life in the heavens really looked like, and it would simply ring with truth. The word for someone who speaks with that kind of resonance with reality is authority. And we live in an age where there is a crisis of authority, a crisis of legitimacy. But Jesus' authority was not rooted, you know, not in his title, not by his position in society, but in his proximity to the Father and in the integrity of his actions. And that is still the most effective teaching. When you're in the presence of somebody who simply lives what they believe, when there's no lag between the words that they speak and the actions that follow. And that's what Jesus did. He wasn't just a conduit of the truth. He was the source. And 
So when he has the audacity to say that his teaching and his words are the authority to build a life upon, that is something that no rabbi would have ever dared saying. They might have said, my teachings are trustworthy, or my teachings are a reflection of the Torah. Or they'd say that the, the law of Moses is the rock upon which you must build your life. But no one would say that their teachings were the rock. No one without the power and the authority of the kingdom, that is. What sets Jesus apart is that he didn't just deliver a sermon. He lived one. And those who build their lives on his teaching, on the trust that he was the wisest, most intelligent person to speak on how to build a life, well, those people will have the same kind of authority when their lives look like his life. You know what it's like when you're around someone who's interior matches the exterior who what you see is what you get there's no hiding there's no mask when the things that they say flow out of the wise ways that they live now i didn't ever meet dallas willard but i think part of the reason that i've taken so much interest in his work is that just about everybody who was a mentor to me was personally mentored by him and one by one in conversation with these mentors of mine, I found that they all said the same thing. And this was true whether they knew him as a colleague at USC, again, that's Southern California, not South Carolina, or whether they knew him as a professor at Fuller or simply as a Bible teacher, that what he wrote on the spiritual life, they all said, was simply an extension of the way that he lived his life. And whenever someone would ask him what the main elements of discipleship were, he'd say three things. Uh, first, for most people, he'd say, your work is your primary school of discipleship, so go about your work really diligently with God's help. Secondly, he'd say, relentlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And third, he would say, offer gentle non-cooperation with evil. Now, one of my mentors who knew him always wondered what that last thing was all about, that uh, offer gentle non-cooperation with evil. And then one day it just kind of sank into him that he, he realized that as long as he had known Dallas, he had never heard him say anything unkind about anyone. And that when people were around him, they didn't gossip or say unkind things about people. And he, he kind of started to look at his own life and he realized that, well, whenever it is that I gossip, I do it because, you know, I get these little social cues from the people with whom you're gossiping. You know, they'll lean forward, you lean forward, you smile, you laugh, you get a little gratification from feeling superior about the, you know, over the person that you're talking about. I mean, can you believe what that person did? I would never be so dumb as that. Gossiping is one of those things that always involves a little bit of judgment, a little bit of contempt. Well, my friend who was telling me all this, he, he went on to describe that with Dallas, there was nothing in him that wanted even in the slightest bit to collude with gossip. It's, it's not like he went around pulling people together, 
wagging his finger and telling them to straighten up. It's just that he would not participate. If people would gossip, he would just kind of look bored or even a little sad. It just wasn't any fun to gossip around him. And as everyone knows, if sin is not fun, you're not doing it right. But it turns out that sin is actually a pretty fragile thing. It just needs someone to offer gentle resistance. The real power of this gentle non-resistance is that when Dallas would speak, well, he would speak as someone who lived what he taught. And that was something rare that caught the attention of all kinds of people. That's what it means to have authority. And it's an authority that is inherited. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus calls his disciples together and he gives them the power and authority that was always his to give, the power and authority to do the things that he did. And as he's getting ready to send them out into the world, he tells them this, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Friends, the power and the authority that spoke the heavens and earth into being is the power to live the life of the kingdom here on earth. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, it has been made available to you. Which means that you have a calling too. To proclaim the goodness and the nearness and the availability of the kingdom wherever you are. And you are going to need an authority and a power that does not come from you if you're going to be part of bringing heaven to earth. And so as we close out this series on his teaching, if you have been listening these, these last 15 weeks or so and you have not yet consciously chosen to place your trust in Jesus and in his power and in his authority, but you desire to do so, well, I hope more than anything that you will. If you've been trying to kind of, you know, white-knuckle it through on your own strength, but you now find that your strength is failing, I want to invite you to come to the one whose kingdom is a place of rest, the one whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light. And the thing about a yoke, by the way, is that it means you don't have to walk alone. So I hope that you'll tell someone who can walk alongside with you. If you don't know anyone, shoot me an email. Or if you think that Catherine is friendlier and you'd rather email her, that's fine. Also, probably accurate. You can chat down below, you can request prayer, whatever it is that you need to do. And you need to know that there's no formula to get started, but you can offer a simple prayer. And in this prayer, you can acknowledge that you desire to follow Jesus and that you hope to know him as he knows you. And you can learn to trust him and grow to love him. Friends, we're here to help you on the journey. And now as a community that looks to Jesus, not only as a great teacher, but as Lord and King who calls us to join him in his mission of bringing heaven to earth, I invite you to come and to take the elements that you've prepared at home. And as we come to the table that has been prepared by Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and is now seated at the throne of the Father, well, it's at this table 
where those who have received the invitation to follow Jesus now come as guests invited and catch a foretaste of that great wedding feast where we will be in the presence of our King forever. And so let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We give thanks to God the Father that our Savior Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this meal to remember his sacrifice until he comes again. And at his last supper, the Lord, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after the supper. And he poured it out and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Friends, wherever you are, know that this is the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of all our sins. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Eat and drink, remember and rejoice. Amen.